Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover and talk about new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Along with all of the diverse courses at IBC and the roundtable talks that Dr. Gruber conducts with world-renowned scholars, we also regularly hold panel discussions at IBC, and we bring faculty members on and discuss a whole host of fascinating issues. A while back, we did a whole series on the differences between Greek and Hebrew thought and how those differences influence those respective communities' ideas around their ideas of where their origins came from, thoughts on the afterlife and resurrection. And if our conversation here whets your appetite, you can go find the whole entire course on this issue at IsraelBibleCenter.com. We are not going to be able to cover everything here. It's just too expansive of a topic, but we can lay the foundation with the question, what are some of the key differences between Greek and Hebraic thought? And then how do those differences play out in how we understand the biblical text? I'm joined in this conversation with Yeshaya Gruber, Nicholas Shazer, and Pinhas Shear. Now, I also have to say, like all academics, we have to talk about how this conversation is in general. And there's just too many small details, the ins and outs of the particularities. Take Greek thought. There is not just one kind of Greek thought. There is a diversity among the Greeks. And so we end up having to spend a bunch of time explaining terms before we get to the heart of the issues we're trying to discuss. But we also have to resist oversimplification. So while the three of our panelists explain everything in much greater detail in their course, I'm going to just dip our toes in by having Yeshaya describe two well-known Greek philosophies that you've probably heard of. So the Stoics, um, very, very brief summary, not doing them justice at all. But they, they trace uh, themselves back to Zeno, who talked about virtue above all and being impervious to circumstances. So whether, whether I get good fortune or bad, it won't affect me inside. I, I know how to deal with it. And that's, that's the true virtue, to be able to handle yourself well um, in every situation. And then Epicurus talked about living moderately, um, avoiding both pain and fear to the extent possible, and uh, seeking good pleasure. So not just unrestrained pleasure, but seeking to have pleasure in your life in a moderate way. And this, this for him was the good life. 
And of course, diversity in Jewish thought already existed at this time. There were people like the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And here on the podcast, we covered the particularities of all of them. So if you missed it or if you want to refresh your memory, then go back and listen to episodes 10, 11, and 12. For our sake here, we're simply going to recognize that there's diversity in both Greco-Roman thought and Jewish-Hebraic thought. Now, Greco-Roman thought formed the majority culture. So how did Jews communicate their point of view so that Greeks would understand, or at least not write them off as barbarians, which is what the Greeks were really fond of doing to people not as enlightened as them in philosophy? Well, certainly Josephus also sought to portray those Judaic ways of thinking in a way that people could understand from within the concepts of Greek culture and that they would appreciate, yep. as you're saying. he I right. mean, he called the mainstreams of thought uh, in the Jewish culture, the Judean culture of the time, philosophies. Right. He wanted people yeah. to understand them as philosophies, like the classical Greek philosophies, whether Stoic or Cynic or Epicurean mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, so there are many points of yeah, comparison the there. The of Israel were the sophists. That's how you called them. <laughs> that's that, that's that same language we saw before. Mm-hmm. Be, yeah. yeah, because this implied in that Greek culture, it could imply at least, um, seekers after wisdom or people who were skilled in wisdom. They had sought knowledge. They'd become trained. They were teachers. They were they were the sages, um, essentially. Uh, the sages is, is a translation of the term that is used uh, in the Talmud, um, later rabbinic uh, writings uh, for for you know early rabbis um and they also adopted many greek terms and greek forms of reasoning uh into those writings as well okay but if they are framing their ways of thinking in terms that the greeks would understand and if they're adopting some of the greek forms of reasoning as yeshaya was just saying then were there actual fundamental differences between jewish and greek thought There's a huge disparaging chasm between what Greeks would think of themselves and what Jews would think of themselves. Because as you read the story Mm -hmm. of creation, it will be entirely different. You have one God versus many gods. You have uh, the mythology, so to say, the stories we tell of our own origins are completely different. And therefore, the values which would come out from those stories, you know, will be entirely different. Beliefs, you know, values, values grow into actions and behavior and so greeks behave the way they behave because what their myths tell them who they are and what their gods are and what their gods tell them to do or model for them and the same thing with jews jews follow a pattern which is laid out for them so two cultures two worldviews which are coming from very different points of origin and therefore they would really have hard time coming together on a lot of the core fundamental issues, that's where the differences are going to lie. In the periphery, they might agree, but in a lot of core issues, they would have really hard time coming together. I think that the last thing that Pinchas said was really important. Um, and he talked about fundamental differences in, quote, points of origin. Right? This is extremely important. That what, what I think Pinchas means, and Pinchas, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you mentioned creation. Well, yeah. Um, when you take a text like Genesis, and then you, you take a text like, uh, you know, something from Hesiod or from Homer, 
you're going to see a completely different set of fundamental beliefs about God. That is different understandings of we would, what we would call theology. And so when it comes to creation, the cosmos, right, with what's around us, and under, understandings of God, Hebraic thought, and maybe that's a better word to use for now, if, if we're talking in terms of the Hebrew Bible, um, the, the, the text written in Hebrew, say, in Genesis, so Hebraic thought versus early understandings of Greek theology, those honestly are going to get fundamentally different. The only thing that I would add is that over time, th these things start to get closer, uh, de depending on the communities that we're uh, talking about and the, and the textual traditions that we're discussing. So hmm. Pinchas is completely right. You start from, I think, quite disparate points of origin. And I think sort of slowly but surely, there's kind of like a, um, a, a magnetism over time, but, but not always. And I don't think it ever gets all the way touching. Um, it it kind of depends on the group or the, or the group of texts that we're dealing with. But um, I would say that there's, a, there's some gradual um, progression and development between the two groups of thought. Okay, so let's just keep this train of thought going. Speaking of creation narratives as fundamental to identity and also thinking about how slowly these points of views are getting closer, I'm going to pull in a part of the conversation that the panel had about the word logos. They had a really long discourse on it that is really fascinating, and I would encourage you to go back and to listen to the whole thing, because that term was already well established in Greek. So Greek writers used the word, and then Jewish writers started using it. But I'm really curious why a Jewish author of the first century writing in Greek would repurpose a well-known, well-established Greek philosophical notion of logo and in doing so, can it still preserve the Jewish concept being communicated? Philo does with Logos the same thing that what Josephus does with sophists. You know, he has a agenda, you know, and his agenda is to uh, make uh, a connection between Jewish culture and uh, Greek culture and to show the Greeks that Jews are not completely out there you know, a bunch of uh, long-haired, bearded guys, you know, who don't know anything about anything. So uh, they are also smart. They also understand these things. So to me, uh, however, I see a huge dichotomy between how Jews use uh, word logos and how uh, logos appears in the um, uh, Greek text. So like I say, you know, when we talk about logos really shows up in a lot of texts that talk from the metaphysical point of view, right? The origin of the world, how the world came to be, you know, so let's say the creation stories of the Greeks, this is where Logos shows up. Logos is the agent of creation, even for the Greeks. Through the Logos, the, the world came to be. And so maybe John is, you know, kind of jumping on that when he gets into his prologue, and, and that makes sense. But then I see one major difference between how Greeks see the Logos and how Jews see the Logos. And the big difference is, for Jews, Logos is personal. Personal and personable, hmm. Okay. For Greeks, that does not exist. You can read about Logos all you want from every Greek text beginning from 500 BCE and further, you know, and into uh, later times. And you will see that every single time the word Logos is being used, it is used as a reason. It is used as a matter. It is used as a thing, principle, anything but a personable way. 
when you get into Memra and things like that, Memra is always an avatar for God. It's the Shekhinah. It's this idea of God's manifestation to the world. And, and so in that way, you will always see Memra personable. Why? Because God is personable, you know, hmm. and, but you're not going to see this in Greek texts. I mean, and Philo, Philo is unique because he, while he's using Greek language, he's really using Jewish conce- conceptualization of Logos. Because if you trace through Philo's texts, you will see that uh, he comes up with that personable idea of Logos. To him, Logos does things, thinks things, believes things, demands things, uh, you know, not, and, and those are all character traits, right? Because a principle, wisdom, you know, some eternal, you know, force doesn't really do any of those things because it doesn't have a character as a person would. I mean, these are big differences to me. So I see a huge dichotomy. It's just that Jews try to use the same language to create some sort of a connection between their culture and the Greek culture, which they're surrounded by. They're outnumbered all the time. Okay, now a question might be popping into your mind, or at least it is to mine. Do we know how people would understand the language? After all, there's a Hebrew-Israelite text written in Greek. Is the translation enough to communicate the meaning? I think humans are creatures of culture. And I think if you put that verse in front of a Greek, he would read it in the Greek way. And if you put it in front of a Jew, he would read it in the Jewish way. And, and each one of them will see their own understanding in those texts, assuming that the text is speaking their language. That's just natural to us humans. And that's the difference now, regardless of how a Jew or a Greek or some, you know, would read this verse, uh, how did John meant, meant it? And that to me is a more important question, knowing that the gospel is attributed to somebody who is a Jew. So I would pretty, be pretty safe that he took the Jewish side of thinking on a logos. So anyway, that's my opinion. I would just say that it depends on the Jew you're talking to in the first century or the Greek that you're talking to. So, for example, we, we saw Philo, right? Philo is one of the most highly educated Jewish people probably in the entire ancient world. So he knows both. Uh, he knows the Greek understanding, right, as, you know, some sort of ethereal, uh, you know, as Pinchas was saying, a principle, a matter, an idea. He also clearly knows the Judaic understanding of, of the Logos as, um, as a personal being and an inter- intermediary in that way. Um, but, okay, so let's say you, you talk to somebody in Galatia um, who, who, let's say, like a, a recent convert to the Jesus movement, a non-Jewish convert. That person is probably going to read John and, and read the Greek Logos into that. Now, I think probably the same could be said for a particularly uneducated Jewish person in Galatia. That is, if, if a Jewish person, and just like today, right, there are all different kinds of, of religious people and, and um, you know, capabilities and knowledge of their own tradition. So if a, a given Jewish person in Galatia is not particularly educated about their tradition, um, they might read uh, Logos in, the, in the, more the Greek style as well. So again, I, re- I really think it, it has to do with um, level of understanding of the ancient traditions, which is kind of what we're trying to put on the table here today. Um, and then also different geographical and cultural positions. Um, but it, it could go either way. It's complicated. Hey, just like today, right? In, in English speaking, if, if you open the Bible in English and you read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, immediately is going to be populated in your head whatever you think Word means, right? Um, and, and 
and there's not one definition of a word at, at all. So that is, you might not be getting, but I just reading in English, um, you're, all, you're probably not getting, you know, the actual fundamental uh, message of John, which is why uh, here at Israel Bible Center, we're trying to, to help you on your journey and offer you some ways not only to learn the, the ancient languages, right, of these texts, but also to open up uh, some of the theology and the, and the Judaic ideas behind this material. Right. Okay. So it's complicated. And we cannot do too much assuming about what went on in the heads of ancient people. But there are other ways we can talk about how Greek thought was quite different from Hebrew thought. Here's a nice opposition of, of statements. Protagoras, a 5th fifth, uh, fifth century BCE sophist, Greek philosopher, said, man is the measure of all things. Um, and we can contrast that with a statement in the Hebrew Bible from Hannah, the mother of Samuel. For yud heh vav the, the particular God of Israel, is a God of knowledge, and by him are actions measured. We can't characterize the entire culture uh, just by a statement or two. But nonetheless, there are certain things that are representative um, or typical of a particular type of literature within the society. And I think these two quotations show something very important that has come up over and over again over the last two millennia in discussions of Hellenic and Hebraic thinking. And that's the idea of man at the center with his reason, or let's say humanity and human reason as being the judge and the standard of how we determine what's right in life, or is there a different way to determine that? And the, the, traditionally, the Hebraic way of looking at it is characterized as revelation. So reason versus revelation. And this is one of the ways in which people tend to uh, characterize two prominent approaches that we find in these literatures. There's another difference that is looming large on the horizon, and it's the obvious one about what to think about God or gods. How did these two people groups think about divinity? Dr. Shazer takes on this question. Greeks and later Romans, who adopted many of the Greek gods, believed in many gods. That is, they had a diverse pantheon. Um, there were gods that had more power than others. Uh, there's kind of a hierarchical ladder system, as it were. Um, if you want to think of, in, in the Greek context, Zeus is going to be um, the sort of head of Mount Olympus, as it were. But all, uh, Zeus has all sorts of different underlings, indeed divine wives, consorts, children underneath uh, him. Uh, and, and Greeks, and, and again, later Romans, um, worshipped all of these entities. Um, uh, highly populated heavens, as it were. Um, whereas the difference is uh, with, with the, um, so that's paganism, or maybe, um, you know, polytheism, to use another term. And on the other side, you've got Israelite thought, Judaic thought. And that is, um, yes, it, the other, the heavens also are highly populated for the Israelites. It's just that they only worship one God. So they're not worshiping many deities. Essentially, they're saying, yes, there may, the, these deities are out there, but our God, the God of Israel, is the best God and the only one worthy of our worship. So that's called often monolatry, or sometimes it's called henotheism, H-E-N-O theism, 
It just means a, gr a Greek term. Interesting. Another Greek term. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> henotheism. Heno meaning one. Theism. Uh, theos in, in Greek means God. So that is the worship of one God. Um, it's not quite monotheism in the classical sense. This, this term monotheism was coined actually sort of in the modern period. Um, it, it also is a little bit, it's a little bit confusing because mono also means one or alone. Um, but when you hear the term monotheism, what you'll often, uh, what, what often will be discussed is the idea that the Israelites believed that there, were, there was only one God in the universe and that God happened to be their own God, the God of Israel. That's monotheism. Um, but I think monolatry, as we, as we have up here on this slide, or henotheism is a much better way to describe the Israelites. They would have nodded to Zeus, as it were, and we'll actually get to Paul doing something very similar as we, as we get to Acts 17. But um, they would have said, fine, yeah, Zeus is up there, but, but our God, the God of Israel, is much more powerful and certainly the only deity worthy of worship. So that's our difference between Judaic understanding of henotheism or monolatry versus a Greek-Roman understanding um, of, of, of polytheism or paganism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, in the story of the Maccabees, uh, this type of conflict includes violence, a, a long war, bloody war, and questions of national identity and so forth. And then through the whole Second Temple period, uh, the later Second Temple period after that, you have a constant question of, you know, how much Hellenistic culture is legitimate um, for Hebrew people or Jews to adopt and so forth. I think now we can finally get to Paul, mm -hmm. or as I put it on this slide, the Jew Saul of Tarsus in Athens. Because if you oh, read right. through Acts, you see actually this idea of a Jewish or Judaic way of thinking versus a Hellenic or Greek way of thinking is a major theme of Acts, actually, that comes up repeatedly as he's in fact traveling through the Greek-speaking part of the empire. What we have is chapter 17, it says that uh, while he was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So this immediately tells you about this Hebraic and Hellenistic um, culture that we were talking about before. Again, a little bit stereotypical, but there's this henotheism or monolatry on the one hand versus polytheism on the other that is a, a constant feature of Jewish-Greek interaction in the ancient world. Um, so it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So that probably refers to non-Jews who were going to the Jewish synagogue, God-fearers, um, as they're often called in the ancient sources, uh, uh, people from a Greek or Hellenistic Greco-Roman culture who wanted to learn more about the Hebrew ways. He reasoned with people in the synagogue, Jews and non-Jews, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now this is really interesting just because it points to the general context of the time. Greek philosophy is part of Paul's historical and cultural context. It's part of his daily life in this text. Every day he's discussing um, with people in the marketplace. And if, if anyone has been to Athens, you know that the ancient marketplace is this large area where... Um, where we're told in, in, in classical sources, Socrates would go to debate and discuss with people. And then just above the uh, marketplace is the Areopagus, 
the um, place where he's going to go to have a more formal conversation with philosophers. So uh, th these philosophies had been around for a long time already in Greco-Roman society by the time Paul arrived in Athens. And so we see in uh, the book of Acts that this is a part of the context. And it goes on to say that uh, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or pious, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, and so forth. And then he goes on to describe his Hebraic conception of the creator of the universe, which is very much in keeping, I think, with the way the Hebrew Bible presents it, that, you know, there are these different territories and peoples, and they all worship different gods. And there's also a God of the land of Canaan, or Israel. But the difference is that this God of Canaan slash Israel also happens to be the creator of the entire universe. And that is precisely what Paul then tries to explain to these uh, Greek philosophers. And he does it in an interesting way. I mean, we have a very brief, brief uh, summary, of course, but he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Um, and that is actually an attested, a quotation from an attested work of uh, Stoic poetry, um, actually. So, um, Nicholas, let, let me go to you first. I, I have all kinds of questions about this passage. I mean, I'm interested in the approach that Paul takes in trying to relate to the other people. I'm interested in the philosophical context. Um, but, I mean, I'll open it up to you and let you comment on this as you see fit. I think something that's really important to uh, to point out, and we talked about, you know, learning the foundational ancient thought first, and then taking step two. Um, this is actually not a bad place to take step two, hmm. um, and and that is so. Notice what Paul's doing, right, in his own ancient context. He goes into Athens. Um, he's vastly outnumbered. Uh, there's a lot of smart Greek people there, and they're talking about all sorts of things. And actually, when Paul, we don't have it in the in the passage up on the slide, but when Paul starts, uh, starts talking, some of the Greek philosophers and thinkers look at him and go, what is this? Essentially in Greek, it's like this seed picker. What, what, is, what is this guy throwing little seeds down and picking them up again? That meaning he's not, he's not talking, he's babbling. He's not talking and he's not progressive, right, in his, in his discussion. And, uh, and yet Paul, um, Paul wants to explain to them the primacy, right? The superiority of the God of Israel, right? There's that henotheistic idea that many gods exist, but our God is the best. And so God, um, Paul wants to explain this. And notice how Paul, what Paul doesn't do, okay? And this can actually get us into a modern evangelical, um, th that is uh, a modern way of like expressing faith or expressing biblical beliefs to other people. Paul doesn't come in with like a Bible in his hand, like a hammer, and say, all your gods are stupid, um, you, you are, you're, you're dumb, you're dopey, you don't know what you're talking about, um, just listen to me, because if you don't, my God's going to smite you, all right? That is not what Paul says. In fact, Paul takes the absolute opposite tack. Paul says, look, I see that you all are very religious, very pious, and I actually respect that. Now, in his head, he's likely thinking, I hate these idols, right? But but it, for the sake of discussion, right, and discourse, he's taking this, this move. And he says, look, look at all these different gods that you have. Well, there's one here that's, that you say is to an unknown god. Um, the Greeks and the Romans like to leave god spots open because there's so many deities in their pantheon that there must be one more lying around that we just don't know about. 
Anyway, Paul takes that and repurposes it and says, this is actually the God of Israel. You just don't know it. And by the way, my God's the best God because my God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Now, the last thing that I'll say on this too is, is notice the, uh, the, um, uh, the text, the, the poetic text, right? That, uh, that Shia pointed out, right? What, is the, what does the Greek poetry say? Remember, this is not Jewish, right? This is not in the Bible. This is, you know, for all intents and purposes, if we want secular philosophical poetry of the Greeks. And the text says, for we are indeed his offspring. Mm. Okay. So Paul is using his offspring there to talk about the offspring of the God of Israel, right? Um, that is this God of the land of Israel, right? Um, but in the actual context of the, of the Greek uh, sentence, right? If you actually look at the text, it's not talking about the God of Israel. It's talking about Zeus. Uh, and so what, what Paul does is kind of just kind of jams the God of Israel into a text that is not talking about the God of Israel. It's talking about Greek deity, right? Um, and But Paul is comfortable using this to try to get into his discussion, open up possibilities for ears to be opened about the greatness and superiority of the God of Israel. I simply collated thoughts that fell along a certain theme for this particular podcast episode. But if you really want to dig in, then go to israelbiblecenter.com and check out the New Testament courses. And there you will find a course all about the differences between Greek and Hebrew thought, vocabulary, concepts of origin, and the afterlife. You can really dig deep into all of the details. To make it easy for you, I'll just put a link in the show notes of the episode. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. You will find helpful links in the show notes of this episode, including a link to sign up as a student of IBC so that you can have access to the large collection of courses and maybe even earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And I will see you next week.